Hello and welcome to the One Sealed Letter podcast, where we explore the legacy of letter writing and bring this beautiful art form into the 21st century. I'm your host, Kay Collier, the voice and warm body behind this podcast and Catherine Hastings and company, our sponsor. Today, Today we're revisiting the letters written by Rainer Maria Rilke in his series of letters to a young poet. This is the fourth letter. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes we did that covered the first three letters, I'd recommend going back and hearing those first. The Rilke letter was the very first episode that I did, and it's actually one of the most popular episodes even today. For those of you that have heard the other episodes, I know it's been a little while since we've read these letters, so I'll quickly recap about the whole scenario around the letters. There are a series of letters between the Austro-Hungarian poet Rainer Maria Rilke and a young cadet and aspiring writer, Franz Kappes. We only have the letters that Rainer Maria Rilke wrote to Franz Kappes, so we don't know exactly what Franz Kappes had written Rilke, but it's clear with the questions that Rilke answers in his letters that Kappes was looking for mentorship and guidance from Rilke about how to grow into an artist, how to know if his path as an artist was the right one, how to have confidence in himself as an artist, how to find his unique voice. A lot of questions about the central message of what it means to be an artist living in a world, often in a world that's not designed for artists. In my own creative life, I've been struggling in the past week or so with questions about what it means to be an artist. I feel that my own work brings things from the space of craft into the the space more of art. And for me, it's very clear the differences in how they're seen. I also believe that craft can be a form of art, but the way that we view craftsmen versus artists can vary greatly. And I think even when we just think about the traditions of artists being traditionally seen as male, craftspeople, weavers, potters, often being seen as female, there are also some ways that those two um, labels, I guess if you want to call them, are seen differently. Also, when I look at some of my favorite quote-unquote craft traditions from around the world, for instance, when I look at the amazing tapestries coming out of Japan or other spaces in in, uh, other types of art in Japan that are really elevated from craft to art, I feel that there is a real space for artists to work with different types of media and really develop something that's speaking to a higher level as opposed to just the functionality of an object. Um, On the other side, I do feel as an artist this pull to bring my art more to earth. Um, Not necessarily that that's a bad thing, but there's a sense that things should be fully functional and not have the, I don't know if the, the right word for it exactly, but the recognition of an artist, kind of who are you to say you're an artist or Who are you to say that that's art? Or who are you to charge what you see as your art is worth? Even when you just think about the comments that are made in coffee shops about the art on the walls, there's a clear judgment about an artist's value. And it's no surprise to me that it's only really posthumously that we look at artists and say, oh, what great work, without realizing, wow, this is something that is done to all artists through history. There's a period where even if you're showing up and expressing your work, 
it's not necessarily recognized. Not necessarily that I feel that way. I do feel like my art is really resonating in the space that I'm working with. But as an artist, I'm having a lot of these questions about my art and how to really step into my voice as an artist. For Raina Maria Rilke's letters, we'll see where this next letter takes us, but I'm sure we'll go more into the theme of the artist. If you have any questions about your own art, or there were there's a particular question that you would have wanted to ask Raina Maria Rilke, I'd recommend just pausing the podcast for a moment to write down some of the questions that you have. It's my experience with these letters that Raina Maria Rilke's advice applies to all different types of artists' questions and anxieties. So I'll give you a moment just to pause if you'd like. And then when you're ready, if you want to come back and you have a list of questions, think about the words that we're going to hear in this letter as though Raina Maria Rilke is talking to you. This letter was written on July 16th, 1903 in Warpsveda, which is northeast of Bremen. This is actually an area that I've spent a fair amount of time. I actually have good family friends on the southwest side of Bremen, and then I lived to the northwest um, much further, so maybe an hour by regional train in Lüneburg, Germany. There are things that he'll mention in this letter about the landscape that I can totally relate to, so I'll try to remember to touch a little bit on that and and how this um, space near Bremen is so uniquely beautiful. Okay, without further ado, Werpsveda near Bremen, July 16th, 1903. About 10 days ago, I left Paris, tired and quite sick, and traveled to this great northern plain, whose vastness and silence and sky ought to make me well again. But I arrived during a long period of rain. This is the first day it has begun to to let up over the restlessly blowing landscape, and I'm taking advantage of this moment of brightness to greet you, dear sir. Dear Mr. Kalpas, I have left a letter from you unanswered for a long time, not because I had forgotten it. On the contrary, it is the kind that one reads again when one finds it among other letters, and I recognize you in it as if you were very near. In your letter of May 2nd, and I'm sure you remember it, as of now it read in great silence of these distances, I am touched by your beautiful anxiety about your life even more than when I was in Paris, where everything echoes and fades away differently because of the excessive noise that makes things tremble. Here where I am surrounded by an enormous landscape, which the winds move across as they come from the seas, here I feel that there is no one anywhere who can answer for you those questions and feelings which in their depths have a life of their own. For even the most articulate people are unable to help since what words point to is so very delicate, is almost unsayable. But even so, I think that you will not have to remain without a solution if you trust in things that are like the ones of my, the ones my eyes are now resting upon. If you trust in nature, in what is simple in nature, in the small things that hardly anyone sees and that can so suddenly become huge, immeasurable, If you have this love for what is humble and try very simply as someone who serves to win the confidence of what seems poor, then everything will become easier for you, more coherent and somehow more reconciling, not in your conscious mind perhaps, 
which stays behind, astonished, but in your innermost awareness, awakeness, and knowledge. You are so young, so much before all beginning, and I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for answers, which could not be given to you now, because you would not be able to live them. At this point, to live everything. At this, and this is the point, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Perhaps you do carry within you the possibility of creating and forming an especially blessed and pure way of living. Train yourself for that, but take whatever comes with great trust. And as long as it comes out of your will, out of some need of your innermost self, then take it upon yourself and don't hate anything. Sex is difficult, yes, but those tasks that have been entrusted to us are difficult. Almost everything serious is difficult, and everything is serious. Serious. If you just recognize this and manage out of yourself, out of your own talent and nature, out of your own experience and childhood and strength, to achieve, to achieve a wholly individual relation to sex, one that is not influenced by convention and custom, then you will no longer have to be afraid of losing yourself and becoming unworthy of your dearest possession. Bodily delight is a sensory experience, not anything different from pure looking or the pure feeling with, with which a beautiful fruit fills the tongue. It is a great and infinite learning that is given to us, a knowledge of the world, the fullness and splendor of all knowledge. And it is not our acceptance of it that is bad. What is bad is that most people misuse the learning and squander it and apply it as a stimulant on tired places of their lives and as a distraction rather than as a way of gathering themselves for their highest moments. People have made eating into something else, necessity on one hand, excess on the other, have muddled the clarity of this need and all the deep, simple needs in which life renews itself have become just muddy. But the individual can make clear for himself and live them clearly, not the individual who's dependent, but the solitary man. He can remember that all beauty in animals and plants is silent, enduring form of love and yearning, and he can see the animal as he sees plants, patiently and willing, uniting and multiplying and growing, not out of physical pleasure, not out of physical pain, but bowing to necessities that are greater than pleasure and pain and more powerful than the will to the than will and withstanding if only human beings could be more hum could more humbly receive this mystery which the world is filled with even in the smallest things could bear it endure it more solemnly feel how terribly heavy it is instead of taking it lightly if only they could be more reverent toward their own fruitfulness which is essentially one, whether it is manifested as mental or physical. For mental creation, too, arises from the physical, is one of nature with it, and only like a softer, more enraptured, and more eternal repetition of bodily delight. The thought of being a creator, of engendering, of shaping, is nothing without its continuous great confirmation and embodiment in the world, 
nothing without the thousandfold assessment from things and animals. And our enjoyment of it is so indescribably beautiful and rich, only because it is full of inherited memories, of engendering and birthing of millions. In one creative thought, a thousand forgotten nights of love come to life again and fill it with majesty and exaltation. And those who come together in the nights and are entwined in rocking delight perform a solemn task and gather sweetness, depth, and strength for the song of, the, of some future poet who will appear in order to say ecstasies that are unsayable. And they call forth the future. And even if they had a mistake and embrace blindly, the future comes anyway. A new human being arises, and on the foundation of accident that seems to be accomplished here, there awakens the law by which a strong determined seed forces its way through the egg cell that openly advances to meet it. Don't be confused by surfaces. In the depths, everything becomes law, and those who live the mystery falsely and badly, and there are very many, lose it only for themselves and nevertheless pass it on like a sealed letter without knowing it. And don't be puzzled by how many times there are and how complex each life seems. Perhaps above them, all there is a great motherhood in the form of communal yearning. The beauty of the girl, a being who, as you so beautifully said, quote, has not yet achieved anything, is motherhood. That has a presentiment, sorry, presentiment of itself and begins to prepare, becomes anxious, yearns. And the mother's beauty is motherhood that serves. And in the old woman, there is great remembering. And in the man, too, there is motherhood. It seems to me physical and mental. His engendering is also a kind of birthing. And in its, in its birthing, when it creates out of its innermost fullness. And perhaps the sexes are more akin than most people think. A great renewal of the world will perhaps consist in one phenomenon, that man and women, freed from all mistaken feelings and aversions, will seek each other not as opposites, but as brother and sister, as neighbors, as we unite as human beings, in order to bear in common, simply, earnestly, patiently, the heavy sex that has been laid upon them. But everything that may someday be possible for many people, the solitary man can have now, already, prepare and build with his own hands, which make fewer mistakes. Therefore, dear sir, love your solitude and try to sing out with the pain it causes you. For those who are near, you are far away. You write, and this shows the space around you is beginning to grow vast. And if what is near you is far away, then your vastness is already among the stars and is very great. Be happy about your growth, in which course you can't take anyone with you. And be gentle with those who stay behind. Be confident and calm in front of them, and don't torment them with your doubts, and don't frighten them with your faith or your joy, which they wouldn't be able to comprehend. Seek out some simple and true feeling of what you have in common with them, which doesn't necessarily have to alter when you yourself change again and again. When you see them, love life in a form that is not your own, and be indulgent towards those who are growing old, who are afraid of the aloneness that you trust. Avoid providing material for the drama that is always stretched tight between parent and children. It uses up much of the child, children's strength and wastes the love of elders, which acts and warms even if it doesn't comprehend. 
Don't ask for any advice from them and don't expect any understanding, but believe in a love that is being stored for you like an inheritance and have faith that this love there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside of it. It is good that you will soon be entertaining a profession that will make you independent and will put you completely on your own in every sense. Wait patiently to see whether your innermost life feels hemmed in by the form of this by the form this profession imposes. I myself consider it very difficult and very exacting since it is burdened with enormous conventions and leaves very little room for personal interpretation of its duties. But your solitude will be a support and a home for you, even in the midst of very unfamiliar circumstances, and from it you will find all of your paths. All my good wishes are ready to accompany you, and my faith is with you. Yours, Reiner Maria Rilke. I believe that's the longest letter that we've read from Rilke so far. So if you need to take a moment just to pause and reflect on what he said, please do so. I mentioned that I'd share a little bit about the space that he was writing in and what that landscape is like. He and I are separated by about 120 years, so there are some major changes, especially with what um, Europe looks like after two world wars. But the landscape that he mentioned about these vast um, I didn't say fields, but it's basically this vast landscape that the wind blows across from the sea. I've definitely had that feeling there. The you know, Bremen has a couple different parts. There's another city called Bremerhaven, which is Haven is Hafen, a port. There's a lot of sea culture there from fishing and, and I'm only thinking of the words in German, so excuse me, um, trade, Hanseatic, um, from trade. And the sense of the north is very uh, different from the south in Germany. The north is much more like a Scandinavian country in so many ways. The coolness of the landscape can be reflected in the people in a way that's really beautiful. I remember going on long walks when I lived in Lüneburg, which isn't, again, too far from where he was writing from, and I would walk for an hour or two hours on my own finding this beautiful solitude on the fields and through the forest. Over time, I'd eventually come across somebody else coming the other direction. And I remember saying hi and nodding. And it wasn't as though I was totally ignored, but I often didn't get any verbal response from them. Sometimes I would get a look or a nod, or I'd get a little bit of movement where they were clearly acknowledging me and making some space on these wide um, trails or um, dirt farm roads that I was walking on. But there was really a sense of big sky and big land. So when he's talking about how he's in this landscape that's allowing him this great silence that's coming from these great distances, I want you just to imagine these huge fields and they just go on forever and the sky touches both ends of the field and it's just vast. Um, it's also, though, a little bit cooler. So even the color of the sky, it's blue, but it's kind of a light bluish gray a lot of the time. The fields obviously change color throughout the year, and they can be very green from all the rain that they get. There's also heather in these areas. Um, 
they call it the Haida, um, so heather fields that turn into these beautiful um, sweeps of purple in August. And so it's a very, um, I wouldn't say austere, but very open place. Um, and there's definitely that space for solitude that he's mentioning. I love the way that he des described Paris, which he said, um, I don't remember the exact word, but basically that it's a place that's buzzing with noise. And so to like, come from Paris and then come to this place, which is so salubrious and time that he can spend from the landscape. Yeah, he wrote Paris, where everything echoes and fades away differently because of the excessive noise that makes things tremble. I feel like Paris still has that. It's such a busy city. Granted, there's, you know, suburbs that are quieter with parks and everything, but um, it's still very much vibrant and alive as it was in 1903 when Rilke wrote. So just some, some memories of my time there. And if you ever get the chance to visit, definitely recommend going to the north and even heading up further, getting closer up to Denmark. There's a town that I love called Nordstrand, um, which is on the Actually, it's on the, the North Sea, but if you go up north, you can either go to the North Sea or the Baltic Sea. Okay, so other things that stuck with me. I did love this huge description that he has about nature and finding silence in the vastness, but also bringing nature down to a very small scale. He said, if you trust in nature and what is simple in nature, in the small things that hardly anyone sees and that can so suddenly become huge and measurable, if you have this love for what is humble and tries very simply as someone who serves to win confidence of what seems poor, then everything will become easier for you, more coherent and somehow more reconciling, not in your conscious mind, perhaps, which stands behind astonished, but in your innermost awareness, awakeness and knowledge. I think that's all an experience that we have the ability for us to connect with ourselves in a way that's at the subconscious level, this place of relaxation, inner knowing, trust in our path comes from those moments where we're just silent and able to enjoy nature. In all the places that I've lived, there has been some form of nature where this exists. So wherever you are in the world, I'd love to hear from you which natural places you find this humble greatness. My hometown, Lake Tahoe, has beautiful pine forests that are really open I don't know exactly why they're so open compared to other forests around the world, but many trees are 15 to 20 feet apart. So when you're skiing, it's wonderful because you can literally ski through the trees. But also on walks, there's a sense of a lot of air and openness. There's tall trees that reach up 100 or more feet, but then you have all this space around the trees, so you don't really feel like you're trapped in the trees at all. And I've always felt that simple space of just being with these trees and how comfortable I feel and how that question that I have about the busyness of the world and my place in it seems to dissolve away. I also like what he wrote about how the conscious mind might not understand it because it's astonished, <laughs> but that innermost awareness is able to really awaken and access that knowledge. So I'm thinking about this with my own questions that I wrote down for my time as an artist, a lot of these questions I had were about how to find more leisure time, how to find more time for my craft, how to find time to be silent and be an artist. I think this is really good advice. Just take time in nature, take time to be, to be the witness, and, and really don't discredit 
things that seem small on the surface because those are the places where you really find that great inspiration. And as he put it, things that hardly anyone sees, dot, 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 can so suddenly become huge, immeasurable. I also like that he's telling Franz Kampus not to, to rush it. I wish that I had read these letters when I was in my early 20s because the sentiment that Rilke speaks to is something that I think people have at different points in their life, but it's something really common in our 20s when we maybe have graduated and are trying to figure out our career. And we see, at least for me, I saw everyone seeming to have their path and me going, I don't, I don't know what to do. My cousin, Casey, is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. She's the most magnetic and um, just beautiful woman I've probably ever met. She's always known that she's wanted to be an orthopedic pediatric surgeon. And it was so interesting to me growing up. She's about 10 years my senior seeing her on her path and how clear it was and how beautifully her life has unfolded and then thinking, oh, okay, well, I'll have that thing. But it never arrived, right? Because I'm not supposed to be an orthopedic pediatric surgeon. I think the way of an artist is a little bit more um, circuitous. It's uh, hard to, to find an exact path. There isn't some company that just hires you as an artist and says, your job is to live your heart's desire as an artist, right? We're living in a world that's designed for other things. And that makes sense because, you know, we need a surgeon, we need farmers, we need things to physically sustain ourselves, but we also need the roses, right? We need the things that make life really beautiful. And so this advice about just being patient is one that I still have to remind myself just trust that I'm that I'm in the right path and it's all good. I also love what he said here. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. At the and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. I don't necessarily try to divine the future, but I am always kind of thinking about, well, what's it going to be like in a year, five years, 10 years, especially as I'm pregnant with my daughter now and I see my son William growing up so quickly. I have all these questions about how we're going to make it work. How how can I balance it all and still be the mom and the wife that I am and that I want to be? The, the point he has is, okay, well, even if I had those answers, I can't live those answers now. So I need to live in this moment. And as I live, the answers are revealed to me. When I talked about that anxiety of my 20s and, and figuring out my path, I had a lot of questions, but many of them were unnameable, that I couldn't exactly say what the anxiety was behind my path, but it was this bigger question that I was waiting to see revealed. As I continued on my path, it became more clear to me. So obviously all the training that I had in art was important, but I did yoga teacher training. I became a yoga teacher, but I didn't actually want to teach yoga. So why did I do that? Well, it taught me a lot about breath and meditation and presence and accessing all these emotions and a place that I create and that I connect. And so it was really important. But then there's more to the path of different nonprofit boards I've been on or, you know, corporate jobs that I've had and stuff. And so what I notice is in all those experiences, all of a sudden it started to come into focus. And I started to see how to make my way as an artist in the world. And so that point about just living, the answers will reveal themselves. 
for me also, once I had the answers, I knew what those questions had been, but I hadn't really been able to, to wrap my brain around them beforehand. Uh, and he'd mentioned also that other people can't help you. They don't know your answers and they're not going to be able to articulate them anyway. I think for all of us as artists, that's really important. Even if you're not an artist, if you have questions about your path, be it in your relationships or your career, even just your health, you can ask people for advice, but nobody knows your exact path. I can see Casey in the way that she lives so fully in her life, but I can't say, well, how do, how do I do what you do? Because I'm not supposed to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so when he talked about sex, I think he was obviously talking about our roles that society puts on us as men and women. It's interesting in this part because I always feel like Rilke is a million miles ahead of me and that I can never get to a point where if we were to have a conversation, he'd be interested in what I have to say. This one, though, I think he would because the time that we live in and how we see so many things on a spectrum. So even just the principle of sex, you could think about your um, chromosomal sex. You could think about hormones. You could think about the genitalia. You could think about even just the role of men and women and how that's being changed in society. Um, and then you think about gender identity. That's something he's not even aware of. He doesn't even have the terminology for it because it wasn't something they had at that time um, that they could even talk about. Uh, and the even just the sense of, you know, his feeling already of these labels that we have, they don't work. <laughs> this isn't this isn't what we're supposed to be. It's a lot of pressure. He clearly felt something that we talk about a lot in our society, but they, they weren't at the time really to think outside of the binary and to have that bigger conversation about how society can make space for people that are whatever they are and um, how, how it's really not something that's so easy to define. So I, I would love if he could come visit us and just see all the conversations that are happening now. Um, and this is like, without even talking about sexual orientation, just about sex and gender, there's a lot here. But the um, piece that he mentioned around the pressure of motherhood, we'll get to that in a second. But I think um, he's speaking to a concept that we've heard in other letters. It's the idea of convention. What's expected of you? What does society tell you to do? Versus what do you actually want to do? And so how do you live in your own individual way, as he put it, that's not in relation to sex, so one that's not influenced by convention or custom? That way you're not afraid of losing yourself or becoming unworthy of your dearest possession. Even though he didn't have all of the terminology and he wasn't steeped in the culture that we have now where there's so many you know, ways to think about gender and sex, he still is giving advice that I think applies now is that, you know, don't think about your label as much as who, who you are and what's dearest to you and live, live in the way that is important to you. Cause that was a little bit of a, a tangent and I didn't prepare anything for that. So I feel like there's a lot more that we could say, but this is an area where I really feel like I would have an interesting conversation with him. He also spoke about sensory experience and how people pursue, and he didn't say hedon, hedonism, but these kind of sensory ple pleasures, and they're misused. It's a stimulant 
of the tired places of their lives as a distraction rather than as a way of gathering themselves for their highest moments. Really felt that in quarantine that there's a lot of things that I would do for self-care, even just getting a massage or going to a yoga class. For me, that was a way to serve my highest purpose, but there's also a way that those could be used as total distraction, even just eating, that he's, as he mentioned. Um, I noticed that myself too. Sometimes eating is necessity. Sometimes it's a mix of necessity and enjoyment. And then sometimes it's just excess. I had, it doesn't matter how many I had, but I had a, a bunch of Girl Scout cookies today and I kept thinking that I had misplaced them. Like I'd grab two cookies, I'd eat one, and then I couldn't find the other and I'd realized that I'd eaten it. <laughs> I wasn't even paying attention enough to notice that I was eating these cookies. Um, of course, they're delicious, but it was that sense of, oh man, I'm really not, not present here and I'm just kind of eating the cookies more as a distraction rather than having it serve some higher pleasure of, you know, enjoying, um, enjoying my experience or being more present in my life. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. There's, I don't remember who wrote this poem, but they said, we don't need church bells ringing all day. So we don't need these moments every single day that are so profound. There are moments where we're distracted and we zone out and that's totally fine. But I think in general, you do want to look at how you're using your sensory experience or things that are, you know, he puts bodily delight in a way that's really serving your highest purpose rather than just distracting you. I think we've probably talked about Brené Brown a fair amount in this podcast, but she talked in her first TED talk about numbing and people who just want to grab the banana nut muffin rather than feel the hard emotion. And so that's, you know, exactly what Rilke is talking about. It's not that our nature is necessarily changed, but we can become aware of how we're using different experiences to numb out. He also mentioned along those lines that there's a space that's above pleasure and pain, that there's a necessity that's more important than that, that we should be serving. Wish he gave some more examples of that though, because I don't know, I think it's very hard for me to think about in my own life. Even just as a mom, there are things that are not necessarily painful or pleasurable, but incredibly necessary but I don't know if that's just more beyond the, the point of survival <laughs> rather than serving another purpose beyond survival. Okay. Other things, he spoke a lot about animals and how different they are and um, the way that new human beings can arise in different ways. He mentioned, again, this is similar to another letter, don't be confused by the surfaces and the depths. Everything becomes law. Very similar to what he's mentioned before. Go inside yourself. Find the depth inside yourself to get the answers that you need. Of course, he mentioned a sealed letter here, so we're going to have to quote this. <laughs> he said, And those who live in the mystery falsely and badly, and there are very many, lose it for themselves and nevertheless pass it on like a sealed letter without knowing it. And I love that image of us having the depth available at our fingertips at all time, but if we're just working with the surfaces, we can handle something that actually would have a lot of meaning and we can even pass it to others without truly experiencing the depth. And the part that he'd mentioned here about motherhood, that this is where I feel like if he were in our time, it wouldn't be so binary that it would be more about parenthood and it could be, you know, any, any role of any gender very much split. 
I like to think that I live in a 50-50 household, but my husband definitely does more childcare than I do. And that's kind of a, a, just a matter of where we're at at this point with me growing another baby, um, but also growing Catherine Hastings and company and all my other responsibilities outside of this. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, he'd have some different ideas about motherhood and not just say, oh, well, man births his own kind of thing. There would be a sense of man and woman are both trying to achieve their own space. And it's not so much specific to motherhood versus fatherhood or the roles that society plays on us. I'm kind of surprised that he didn't catch that in this advice that he's giving because he spoke earlier about not conforming to what society expects with gender or he says sex. Um, But then he says something that's actually very much giving a restriction. Okay, so a little bit later, again, this is a long letter, so we're getting close to the end here. Um, The PC mentioned about growth and how to be happy as you grow really resonated with me. And I'm curious if this resonates with you as well. Um, he mentioned that you can't take anyone with you. And I don't, I don't know. I think at least in my own growth, I feel like there are people that are alongside of me. They're not necessarily on the same journey, but my best friend, Francesca, who of course I've talked about probably every single episode, uh, she's been with me the whole way and we've had really great periods and we've had periods where we're not happy with each other, um, more so, I probably do more to bother her than she does bother me, but we that's just a factor of growth and that when friends change, you have to adjust and you have to forgive and create space for people to grow. So I do think you can bring people with you. My husband and I have been together about 12 years now, I think, and we are different people than when we met, but we have grown together and we've grown alongside each other. So I do feel like you can bring people with you. I like, though, that he does mention that certain people stay behind and to be gentle with those who stay behind. So still to be confident and calm in front of them, but don't torment them with your doubts and don't frighten them with your faith or joy. I've definitely found this as I've stepped more into my path as an artist and owned it. It can make people really uncomfortable. And on the other side, it can really inspire people who get it. So people that are on the same path or they want that for themselves and they're happy to, to dive in and just do a new experience, they actually do come with me on this path and they lift me up and I lift them up and I see it as really beautiful. I have this judgment about the people that are staying behind, those friends that have been there, but they're just not happy with this change. Um, and I don't know, I, I may be overthinking it a bit, but I can see sometimes that when I step into my power, it makes other people uncomfortable. And rather than me having a judgment about them, just to be kind, um, one of my friends put it basically just like, step aside, just like keep going, step aside. There's no, there's no conflict here. You're just kind of working around. Um, but what I, my go-to in that is that I'll kind of downplay what I'm doing or I'll act a little bit uncertain to show, oh, well, even though it looks like I'm doing great, like it's really hard or I'll say things like that. And it's not that it's untrue, but I am trying to diminish my own power to make people more comfortable. Does this make sense? And this might just be my own, my own baggage that I'm working with in this process, but 
have you had that in your own life where you make a change that's positive and it makes people around you uncomfortable? I often feel like it's the people who are closest to you because they want to protect you and they don't want you to make mistakes. Uh, my mom is very supportive of me, but she's also the first person to tell me about the risk in anything I'm doing. And so um, she's, you know, I'm bringing her with me <laughs> on this path. Um, but just a, another example of, okay, when you're you're going through growth, you are you're going on your own. You actually can't really bring people um, and then also he'd mentioned, so not only to be confident and calm and, but you know, don't torment them either with your doubts or with your faith or your joy. So don't flaunt it. Um, and that's like, I think a really hard thing in the time that we live in because our social media only shows people's joys, right? We only see, let's, I don't know who originally said this, but the highlight reels of everyone's lives. And so if you're a person that's stepping into your power and you're stepping into your growth, my friend Olivia is doing this right now. She just started her own business and she is just owning it and she's doing awesome. And it, yeah, it can make some people uncomfortable. Um, but when I look at it, I'm super happy for what she's doing because I see the courage that it takes for her to step out and take the risk. And that idea of social media giving me that image is one that I wonder, okay, well, how does that affect different people differently? We could look at it from the perspective of Rilke's advice of, be confident and calm in front of them, but also don't torment them. It is hard though, when you have a media that's just your highlight reels, that is not going to come across as flaunting to people that are uncomfortable. I loved what he, um, and he finished that thought in talking about love and how, even though you're not bringing people with you, and he talked about this from the perspective of children and their elders. So if, you know, if you're a kid, not to put, what did he say? Um, he said to avoid the drama, don't ask advice from your elders and don't expect understanding. Boy, couldn't we all use that? <laughs> um, yeah. And again, this is, everyone has their own path. It's very common for us to look to those who are closest to, especially our elders to get advice. And I regularly see, seek advice, um, particularly from my in-laws on parenting stuff, just because I know it's a space without judgment and that they provide really good advice, um, but I'm not necessarily looking for validation as a parent, right? If I'm um, doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to put the weight on them that they see me and that, <laughs> that I get that validation, right? I'm, I'm just um, showing up as I need to show up. I love that he wrote, believe in a love that is being stored for you like an inheritance and have faith that in this love, there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside of it. Just imagine what your life would be like if you just felt like no matter the step that you take, you're just surrounded by this love and this inheritance, this space that's being stored for you. That's really powerful. And I, I have that sometimes in my own life. We talked about Candide in the episode with Laura LaRosa and how I mentioned I didn't understand it was a satire when I was 15. And I just thought that I agreed with Candide because he said he was, you know, such a relentless optimist. Um, but I love that feeling in my own life that I am surrounded by blessings and love and that wherever I look for it in the world, it's there no matter where you go. I think about this sometimes that I'm very close with my childhood friends. We grew up in this small town on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe. 
and they're still some of my very best friends, and I did nothing to earn their friendship. There was literally no part in it on my, there was nothing on my part. Our parents moved there, you know, we happened to be in the same classroom. There are people that I love dearly and that I didn't choose. And then on the other perspective, even thinking about going to places like Lunaborg, like I'd mentioned before, meet the most wonderful, open people, so kind. And wherever I've traveled in the world, I find that. And so I see this on this kind of micro and macro level that there is this great blessing that we all have. And maybe that's naive. Maybe it's just overly optimistic. But I do find that that faith that I have in the goodness of the world and the, the love that I have for people, it's reflected and that it's, it's all over the world. And so I think it's a really good place to live from. And, you know, we're always going to step out against our fears. So why not have that thing that you believe that's that cushion of love that gives you the confidence to step out? Because it's already going to be a little bit scary, no matter what. Okay, let's see. Um, he mentions more about the conventions. Um, and again, this is about the duties that... Of, and this is a little bit different on the duties, so not necessarily the duties of our prescribed sex or what society expects of us, but of a specific role. He doesn't give us a lot around that, but he does mention that there's very little room for personal inter interpretation of duties. also just think it's the time that they lived in. The time we live in now, there are careers where you can have a lot of freedom in what your duties are. And there's going to always be parts that you don't control yourself whether you're self-employed or you work for someone else, but even just when you think about what the internet has done uh, has done for the office space, I know many of us would want to be in person right now if we could, but just think about, wow, you could work from home. You could go to your sink at any point in the day. You could go sit on your couch at any point in the day. There's a lot more physical freedom than we've had before. Um, and then also there's all different types of working arrangements. You think about putting your art on the internet and there's people that want to buy your art. I'm amazed by that. If I was just in my little hometown and creating my art, I wouldn't necessarily have an audience, especially if it were 1903. There'd be nobody to buy it, right? But in the world we live in now, there's a huge um, way that you can interpret your duties in work and finding work. Okay, so I hope that you found this helpful. I know this was a very long letter, and I hope that the, some of the things that were resonating with me also resonate with you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can send me a direct message on Instagram at Katherine Hastings Co. And then my email is just katherinehastingsco at gmail.com. We'll sign off today in the way that Reiner Maria Rilke signed off in this letter. All my good wishes are ready to accompany you and my faith is with you, yours.